Welcome to the OMA Talks podcast. I'm your regular host, David Petro. I say regular because this episode, I will be turning the reins over to Ian Brody and Beza Caesar, who write the new Coding in the Classroom column in the OMA Gazette. This episode is a companion to their September column, which is out now, and we will be featuring further companion podcasts for future columns, so stay tuned for those. That being said, I'm going to let Ian and Beza get right to it as they interview teacher Pekka Rainia. Welcome to the audio version of Coding in the Classroom, our column in the OME Gazette. Beza and I are seeking out teachers across the province of Ontario to talk to them and learn how they are using computational thinking for learning in their classrooms. Welcome, everybody. This is uh, Ian Brody and Beza Cesar, who are interviewing Pekka Radio, who has been doing coding in his class for quite some time. Pekka, could you just introduce yourself for us, please? Right. Well, hey, Beza and Ian, thank you for having me on tonight. I really appreciate you taking time to chat about coding. Yeah, my name is Pekka Rainio. I've been an elementary teacher for uh, over 20 years. I first got involved with coding in the classroom, I would say around 2008 or 2007, when I first met Michael Resnick at an ECU conference. He was presenting there and he was demonstrating a brand new piece of software they were releasing from MIT called Scratch. And from that day forward, I've been using Scratch in the classroom. And luckily, over the last six or seven years, I've been the teacher librarian. And so my job as teacher librarian is to partner with classes. And so one of the things that teachers have enjoyed having me come in to do is coding with their students. And especially this last year, not only because of the pandemic, but because coding is now part of the math curriculum. And so they're eager to see how to teach coding in the classroom beyond things like code.org or something like that, right? So they want um, better coding experiences for their kids. And so I've been able to do a lot of experimenting over the last 10 years and really fine tune it now for, for students in elementary, probably now for grade nine and 10 as well. Yes, well, the, the new grade nine D stream math curriculum just came out today and it does include coding. I saw so, that. Yeah, so why, why do you think implementing computational thinking in math education is important? Well, including coding in math uh, is, is very important. You know, coding teaches logical thinking and problem solving in a very immediate kind of way and in a way that the kids are eager to learn because it's because if they're creating video games, which is the tool or the vehicle I use. So when I go into a classroom at the end of each period, the kids have created their very own video game. And so they're eager to make sure that their games are working, that they're having fun with them, and they want to learn how to code to do that. And they want to figure out how to fix the glitches, and they want to figure out how to improve their game. So not only does it teach problem solving and logical thinking, but it incorporates many, many, many of the expectations from all of the strands while they're coding. So in a way that's meaningful to the students. Have you also noticed that you said the, the debugging, that the debugging is actually a, a really important skill for the kids? Yeah, and- it, is, it, is, it is one of the expectations in the curriculum, right? That they write code, but that they also rewrite code. And so in rewriting code, what they're doing is they're looking for errors and ways to make their code more efficient or more elegant, right? So some kids will write code that takes up 20, 30 lines where you could, or and some kids do, write the same or get the same results in 10 or 15 lines of code. And they learn that to be able to write code much more efficiently is better in the long run. It makes their games run smoother and 
it just enhances that logical thinking and problem solving. Cool. I also wonder what you mean with uh, finding meaningful. So how does uh, affect your students? No, it's a good question. Thank you. So when they're creating their own video games, of course, they want their games to work. And the way I teach it is we make fun games like Jaws or Haunted Forest or Space Scroller. Um, and they want these games to work. And so if there's bugs, it's not working, they want to get in there and fix it and figure out what the problem is. So it's meaningful for them. If it's not working, they're not having fun. They, they like these challenges. They want the games to work. And so they work hard to make sure that the code is properly done. I, th I think that's what you're getting at, Biza? Yeah, definitely. I think it's really connected with resilience. Yep. Yeah, yes, or perseverance, you know, going back and combing over all that code and trying to figure out um, what to do is, is certainly resilience and grit and perseverance. And it's, it's kind of like an anti-worksheet where, you know, yes. you, get, you get, okay, so I got like seven out of 10, right? Awesome. I'm good. Am I going to go and fix yeah. this three? No. But if I've got yeah. a bug in my code, I'm going to go and I really am going to hunt it down. Yeah. And you know what? I've seen other teachers try to teach code and it's not easy. I struggled for years and years how to teach code. And it's only in the last six or seven that I've been more successful teaching it. But, you know, I think teachers rely on simple activities like moving an object around a grid. Deadly boring. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work, the kids don't really care. But if yes. it's a video game where you're trying to escape a shark, they want it to work, right? It's lots of fun. So yeah. they will go back and fix that. So the video game creation is the vehicle to teach them how to code. Yeah. So have you looked at uh, Make Code, their arcade that they have? Uh, no, I should take a look at that. There's so many out resources mm -hmm. out there that are, are, are pretty good. I have to maybe check some more out. I've been really focusing on Scratch and the yeah. creation of video games using yeah. Scratch. Oh, yeah, I, I totally love Scratch. It's like so well supported. And as you say, like Mitch Resnick is behind it. And if Mitch Resnick yeah. is behind it, he, yeah. he like it's, it's going to be good. So, yeah. Okay, you know what? You... I, I made a game last week called Haunted Forest. Yeah. I bet I spent 30 hours figuring out how to code that game because I coded a good game and it was lots of fun. But it was complicated. I tried it with a grade seven group. They struggled. I tried it with a grade three group. They struggled. But those grade threes told me some things that I should try. And I went back and I rewrote Haunted Forest, slightly simpler version. But now it can be taught within an hour. All the kids, grades three to eight, can do it within an hour and have fun creating a real video game. So that's my challenge is simplifying these games enough so that everyone understands how to code it and what all of the functions are. Because if you go on some of these places like YouTube to watch these expert coders, those are designed for the experts, right? Mm -hmm. For most of us, we're yes. going to get lost in five minutes and give up, which is what I had with my first version of Haunted Forest. I had to really simplify it. It wasn't any worse. It was just simplified the code. So I'd spent a lot of hours thinking about how to present it to the students in a way that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so games, games I am really, really interested in because uh, they also have to have a story. So I know there's uh, an initiative right now for uh, Indigenous peoples to uh, learn how to code so they can tell their stories and make them into games. And that's all for like Indigenous youth that's coming on right now, which I think right. would be just amazing. 
I've experimented with using Scratch to do presentations. So you can make video mm -hmm. games, but you can also make presentations. So let's say you have a science uh, expectation you want the kids to demonstrate their understanding of. So you could go into Scratch and perhaps you're doing flight and the kids are going to use Scratch to demonstrate concepts from flight. That's been more difficult than the video game creation. So I'm still working at that one. It's not easy to do it that way. Yeah, that, that one kind of needs like a physics engine, which is, yeah. you know, you have to you have to work on the the like everything going minus Y at certain amounts of time. But yeah. Hey, my kids do grade ones minus Y and, oh, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's no problem. It's just it's uh, it, creating a story in Scratch is different than creating a video game. And I haven't mastered that part of it yet. Yes. Cool. So uh, we, we heard you got started with Mitch Resnick. So which yeah. resources assisted you when you were implementing it at the beginning? Um, when I first start with students, what resources do I use? Yeah. We use only Scratch. Okay. We start with Scratch and we stick with Scratch, right? So that they can develop mastery of those different blocks. Because you know what? Once they learn how to code in Scratch, all those skills are you can generalize them and uh, apply them to other programs. So after kids learn to use something like Scratch, which I recommend highly, it's one of the best ones, then they can learn and take those concepts and move on to C++ or Java or what they really should be doing in high school is moving on to Python. And so I know it's not block coding, but still the same concepts are there. So through elementary, we stick with Scratch. And then I encourage them to try it other programs after that. But I see in high schools, when I go for visits there, they're still using Scratch, introducing it in grade nine, 10 and 11, mm -hmm. using Scratch to do robotics. So my kids going there in my school, they're experts already. So they're way ahead of the game. Yeah, it's gonna be really great for them in grade nine. Like uh, when, when your kids get to grade nine, it's gonna be like, woohoo. Yeah, sure easy mark. This. Yeah, easy, yeah. So here, maybe uh, you already faced many. So we would like to ask, what are the challenges you face during the integrating CT in your classroom? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's another very good question. I had lots of challenges. You know, I started coding with uh, classes back in about 2008 using Scratch. And I would say for my first six or seven years, I had no success. I kept trying but I wasn't very successful. You know, in each class, you always have a couple of kids that despite how poor the instruction is and something like coding, they will learn how to code, teach themselves, right? But for the remainder of the kids, they will not find coding fun and they will not have uh, any success. And so I struggled with that for six or seven years, trying to get them to learn how to code. And I realized that my approach wasn't a, a good approach. And so I changed my approach over the course of one year to, first of all, to have a goal of creating a video game at the end of each lesson, but also to break up each lesson, which goes for about 50 to 60 minutes, to break up each lesson into many, many bite-sized little chunks. And so I give a coding instruction and I have the kids go and get off to work. And then I call them back five, 10 minutes later and say, okay, I got a tip and a little trick for you here. So take a look what I'm going to do. And I show them on the whiteboard what to do next. And they go back and they work on that. And I call them back again. And we do that throughout the period. They work, they come back for a little mini lesson, they go back. If you overwhelm them, they will give up as soon as they get uh, um, stuck because it is overwhelming. There's lots of stuff there. So um, not only do I do it in bite-sized chunks and I have a, a game goal game, a goal of having a game at the end, but um, um, I structure the lesson so that it progresses in a very easily understood way. 
so that everything leads into the next thing and they can see the connection. Yeah. So those are three ways that I've, I've worked on yeah. in learning to instruct students in coding. Yeah. And then how do you get the games to align with the, all the different curricula? Right. Well, up until last year, didn't, there was coding wasn't part of the curriculum. And so we were always struggling. How are we going to put this into math report cards? We know that it's addressing many of the math expectations. Mm -hmm. So what we were doing for a long time is putting it under learning skills, problem solving, uh, those kind of things. This year, however, there's a, a separate strand for coding. And so the teachers are less stressed now about teaching coding. Uh, because although they liked it, they were having difficulty fitting it into their report cards. They knew it was beneficial, but they couldn't really mark it. Because I tried teaching coding where you teach a specific expectation through Scratch. It wasn't that great. But now, this way, it's much better. We can focus on writing code, rewriting code, and all of the other expectations in the curriculum. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's more about doing the problem solving, the project-based learning, and like the inquiry and saying, like, how can I get this to work, which are yeah. the really important skills that we have to teach our students rather yeah. than, okay, yes, you can add two plus two. Yeah, the, the, the coding curriculum is very general and vague. So that's when you do coding, as long as you're writing code, rewriting code, then you've addressed that curriculum. And through scratch, you're taking it to way higher levels than what's expected in the curriculum. I have grade ones that are coding fantastic things and much higher than what's expected in the curriculum all through scratch. Yes, it's, it's not stated in the curriculum, but the, the designer of the curriculum said that we should look at grade level expectations as a guaranteed minimum rather than a goal to, to hit. Great, thank you. I, 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 that's, that's good to know. Thanks, Ian. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that, uh, and also it's mentioned in the curriculum that the focus is coding, but it's, we are talking about the CT, overall computational thinking. So it is, it is beyond coding. Maybe we have yeah. many things to add, add related to curriculum, but we need to look, we need to find the way how to look this connection, I think. Yeah. And you know what? When a teacher walks into the class, let's say a grade four class, and hears what they're saying and sees what they're doing in terms of uh, computational thinking and logical thinking and problem solving, they're, they're surprised and they're very pleased at what these kids are able to do through coding. It's a great, great skill to learn. And it, and it makes it easy for them to learn all of those really important critical thinking skills that you just mentioned. Yeah. And they, they, they like math. You know, when I come in, cause I'm traveling from class to class, when they see me come in they're all right, Mr. Reno is here. We get to do coding. And, and I associate that with math. It is math, but they see math in a positive light. So yeah. some, some, someone has said putting coding into the math curriculum is kind of like a Trojan horse in order to, to help us to improve our math teaching. What do you think about that? To help us improve <clears throat> our math teaching? Well, I guess it helps us apply our math teaching. That's, that's maybe one thing for sure. Uh, will it help us teach our math thinking? That's a good question. Yeah, I'm going to have to think on that. I know it helps in problem solving and mathematical thinking and it addresses many, many of the expectations. So I assume, I guess it does help our math teaching if it's instructed well. You know, if you instruct something poorly, it's not going to help most of the kids. So you have to teach coding properly. It's not that simple. What I see a lot of teachers doing right now is just throwing their kids on something like 
code.org and, and then letting them go. We don't do that with math. We don't put them on a math program and, and say, learn transformations or whatever. We instruct them. Coding needs to be instructed. And I think that's where we need to look at next for supporting teachers in mathematics is helping teachers learn how to instruct coding. Yeah. So that, that was Seymour Papert, who uh, was the, the one who uh, supervised Mitch Resnick for his doctorate and was oh. his. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Seymour Papert is like the originator of Logo, which is the first uh, educational coding program. Right. So he used to say that coding has a low floor but it has a high ceiling, high ceiling. And, and wide walls. So you can take something very simple to, for them to start with, but they will naturally progress up upwards. So you differentiate upwards rather than differentiating downwards, which is what coding allows you to do. And, and I think with the mini lesson approach that I use, it allows those kids who are very strong and picking it up quickly to take it to their own levels and apply their own skills while they're coding. Meanwhile, the kids who may struggle, they may not have been exposed to coding, they will also see success because I've set it up in such a way that everyone will have some success and some can take it even further. So yes, that's a good one, a high ceiling and wide walls I like that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because yeah. coding allows for certain learning opportunities and affordances. What have you noticed happening in your classrooms when your kids are, sorry, your students are engaged in CT? Um, well, I've noticed a lot of, well, not this year, but up until this year, I've noticed a lot of students meaningfully working together. When they're stuck, I encourage them to help each other out. And so they will. So they'll go over and teach each other. And that promotes a mastery and understanding of the coding concepts. Because as you know, Beza, I mean, when you have to teach something to someone, you become an expert at it. You learn more than when someone's trying to teach you. And so I encourage that. And they do that a lot. They help each other out, debugging, fixing, explaining things. And that, that's one thing I notice in the classroom. Not so much this year because we're doing everything online. Uh, there's not nearly as much chatter and helping each other, but I'm looking forward to next year when we can get back in the classroom and the kids can work together to help each other out. You know, this also, uh, um, this approach that I use also makes for accountability. Every student has their own computer and they have to create their own games. You're not working in a team. Although you're helping each other, you can help your neighbor, help your friend, show them some coding tricks that you learn. Every student is making their own games, so they have to rely on themselves to uh, learn how to code and actually do the coding. So I think that's an important part of learning how to code. I just uh, wonder what you think, Becca, about these uh, tech buddies, coding buddies. So this collaborating between grade one, two, three, and uh, so... Yeah, no, I think that could be a very good approach as long as all of the students have their own computer because what I find is, because I've, I've done this before, before we had this many computers, you know, five or six, seven years ago, we didn't have that many laptops in the school so kids would have to share. When that was the case, one kid did most of the coding and the other students could just kind of avoid doing most of the work and they didn't learn anything. This way, when you have one-to-one, -one, so one computer for each student, they all learn how to code, but they can still help each other out and they do a lot of that. So those kids that might have just um, avoided doing the coding many years ago now are asking for help, are learning a few things and helping other people and seeing that they can be successful and they can be good at coding and that they can be good at mathematics as well.
I find frequently that we'll we'll have students who are going like, oh wow, look what I just did. And then everybody goes around and looks at it and then takes that idea and goes off with it. Yeah. And I do that a lot too. I say, oh, come on, look at what so-and-so did. I've never seen that before. How did you do that? And I might plug it into the projector and show everyone. So yeah, that's, that's a great approach to really encourage them to, to, to do their own things with it. So when it's too prescribed, like those activities where you have to move the turtle three left and four up, there's no deviating from that. And it can be deadly boring i'm sorry to say okay i'm gonna say this really (laughs) quietly and i'll probably delete this but i hate those ones yeah gamification doesn't work for those you have to give them like a good problem like yeah i need to make a game that's gonna like have this shark go and eat all the fish and then it's like okay now i've i know what i want to do how do i do it which then that gets them into the whole process of like figuring everything out yeah. Yeah. So we leave things open. So there's lots of opportunities for them to modify it for themselves and individualize it. So like when we do a dance party game, they can choose different moves, characters, music, they can apply them differently. And so they really learn how all this coding works when they have opportunities to individualize their games. Yeah. Have you tried uh, hooking it up to Makey Makey? I've not seen that, but no, when I have classes of 20 or 30 kids, Oh, uh, I'm yeah. just going to stick to the games, right? Yeah, but, yeah, because you can do those dance party ones and then create the little dance squares. Yes, we did, right. we did that. Yes. We did that in my well, it was it was university students, so like B Ed students. Yeah. They they created them out of those little um, IKEA squares. Yeah. All right. So now the last question that we had here is: In what ways do you think implementing computational thinking has helped your students' cognitive and social emotional learning? Well, cognitively, for sure, they've been able to apply a range of math uh, expectations through coding and really learn um, how those expectations work and what they they mean. So there's no question there. Uh, They enjoy it. They like coming to school to do coding and math. Often at the end of the year, they will say that that's part one of their most favorite things that they've done throughout the year. And so, you know, I can remember a student I had in grade six uh, about three or four years ago. He couldn't do any paper pencil work. He couldn't stay focused on a task. He often was in trouble at school for talking out and other misbehaviors. He was a coding genius. When he came to coding class, everyone saw him as the expert. Everyone saw him as very, very smart. And so that really helped his self-esteem and it made him see himself in a different light so as we're in a regular classroom kids didn't think he was a very good student and he was often in trouble when he came to the coding class this picture completely changed he was the smartest one there he was the most uh, on task he would gladly go around and help other students and I remember that year being very important to my thinking about how valuable coding is I like to do things that don't always don't always get a lot of attention from the teachers and that some students who are left out can benefit from. And coding is one of those things. Although now when I teach coding, I get 100% buy-in. All the kids are doing it. So I think it's been really nice for all of the kids to be able to do coding. Yeah. So, so once you start, word gets around from class to class that, hey, this is actually kind of cool. This is really yeah. fun. I'm in charge of my learning. Yeah. And then, yeah, they, they buy in. 
you know, if I set up activities where they're creating a game, for example, everyone has to create a circus game. You have to have these three sprites and the game has to include you catching these balloons. And then you let them go off and it's like a little competition. And so you give them parameters and they all try to create something within those parameters. And of course, apply all the coding skills that they've learned and some new ones. Many kids will go to YouTube and learn some new tricks. And then they come back and share their games. It's a lot of fun and it's a very valuable learning. Yeah. And you, you, you said the creative word. So like creativity is enhanced when you give that kind of open, semi-open yeah. Or, yeah so do you, do you, would you consider them open or semi-open problems? Semi-open. The open ones don't work. If yeah. you don't have some parameters there and you just let it open to do whatever, they won't have any satisfaction, right? When we play games, there's things that you have to get past. You have to get past these aliens. You can't go this way. You can't go that way. You can only shoot three times per second or something like that. Those parameters make it more interesting. And so when you ask them to create games, no, you have to have parameters. If you leave it open, uh, you won't get much success, I don't think. So there's, there's a lesson there in how we teach language and how we might teach math or science as well, isn't there? Right. Yeah, I guess so. May I ask one question here? Of course. Yeah. Oh, please. I wonder which part of this process that kids enjoy most, um, the learning Creating, sharing, or what else? Which part they like most? Learning and creating. So they'll do some sharing, um, but they like to learn new ideas and new concepts. So every time I teach a new coding lesson, I make sure to teach three or you know two or three new concepts. They like learning new concepts. And I can uh, give you another example in chess. So sometimes schools have chess club and they just let the kids play. I have chess clubs. I'm the chess coach at my school. And uh, we meet three times a week and I teach them a new skill every single time. Mm -hmm. And they like that. They like to learn terms like forking, pinning, skewers, gambits, tactics. They like to learn the terms. They like to learn those little tricks and strategies. So um, I think that's probably the best part. They like learning new concepts. And then the next best thing is applying them, of course. And then the next best thing is sharing them. So they like learning new concepts. Kids like to learn and um, we can teach them lots of stuff. In fact, the more mathy or nerdy the terms seem, the more they like it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yay, math nerds. Do you not agree? Do you not agree, Ian and, and Beza? Oh, no, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had a I had a class um, last Thursday, my coding class, and I went into one of the breakout rooms and like I dropped in, they, they completely didn't see me drop in, but they were doing all these really, really cool things saying, okay, no, we have to put that conditional statement in this and we have to do this and then we have to do that. And it's like, and so I was going like, wow, what coders you are now. Think about what was yeah. happening. Like the five weeks ago, you didn't know anything and you were worried about yeah. this. And now look at you now. And it was like, yeah, it was amazing. Same thing happens in chess, right? Hey, yes. you should, you oh, should yeah. have castled there because now look, now I've pinned your knight and I'm going to fork you next. Yes. So they do the same thing in coding. They like to learn, use those terms, right? Yes. Um, so I can't, we can't shy away from that. They like it. Yes. Actually, it is kind of life itself because we are learning till we burn. We are learning step by step and every new things make them excited. So if we, I think it's up to teachers mostly how you give it. And as you said, the steps is really 
to keep them excitement about the new things, it's really important. Yeah, teach them new things, give them opportunities to apply those skills and practice those skills, and then we celebrate those those skills. So they, they like that. If you just give open and no instruction, you're not going to have any luck with coding. Yeah. So it's, it's actually quite simple, isn't it? No. <laughs> I, uh, those first five or six years, I had no luck. Uh, no. So uh, I'm glad I stuck with it and changed my way of teaching. And, and now it does seem a lot, lot simpler. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in like when you finally get there, it's simple. Yeah. But getting there is is a lot of work and the other reason i had a hard time was because there's no one to show us how to do it so i think co the coding instruction out there right now is there people are still learning how to do it they only have a basic understanding themselves and so they don't know how to teach it so i had to teach myself how to teach coding and so that's why i've made my series of videos mm -hmm. so that teachers can play my video and just like I do in a class, I tell them teachers when to pause, they pause. So they play my video, the kids watch, teacher pauses, the kids go and code, then they come back, watch the next little part, go and code. And within an hour, the kids have made a video game and they all build on each other. So I wouldn't suggest people skip through the lessons. You go from one to the other. And by the end, you're making uh, games like Alien Invasion, which is a ripoff of Space Invaders. They're making uh, other games that are Atari ripoff games and Nintendo style games. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's fun, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to help our teachers to learn how to teach the code through these videos. And, and of course, you need to now say what your website is or where the website is that you can go and get it. Well, I don't have a website. I'm a teacher. I don't have time to build websites and stuff like that. But I do have them posted on a YouTube link. Perhaps I can send you the link, Ian, and people can see all of the videos and then they can get the links to the full videos there. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. We'll put that into the, we'll put that into the written one. Thank you so much for spending time with us, uh, Pekka. And on behalf of Beza and myself, I hope that our listeners enjoyed this recording and we will be coming up with new ones in the future. Coding in the Classroom is written and produced by Beza Caesar and Ian Brody for the OME Gazette. The editor for the Gazette is Tim Sibald. Thank you for, to Upbeat and Soundroll for the theme music. That was the first episode of Coding in the Classroom, hosted by Ian Brody and Beza Caesar. They interviewed Pekka Rainio. The full article can be found in the September issue of the OME Gazette. Links mentioned in this episode can be found in the podcast description or on our website. Look for the next episode of Coding the Classroom when the December Gazette comes out. And so until then, thanks for listening and stay safe. <laughs>